Right now, 24 degrees, relative humidity 78%. The news from RTHK. And welcome. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning. Uh, I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. It's serious matters today as we discuss the right of critically ill patients to refuse treatment. Health authorities have proposed amending existing laws to give more rights to critically ill patients in deciding whether or not to stop receiving medical treatment. Under the legislative proposals on advanced directives and dying in place, medical professionals, including those outside of medical settings, would be required to respect a patient's wish to end medical treatment or not be resuscitated. The prospective amendments would safeguard medical staff from prosecutions, provided they have acted in line with patients' wishes. What do you make of these proposals? Should we give critically ill patients the right to end their treatment? Or is our medical system duty-bound to keep patients alive no matter what? We're going to talk about that. And then at 9.45, we're going to be talking about Hong Kong hosting the National Games. But we want to hear from you. Leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, or you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk. And to kick us off today, we have two eminent experts uh, that we can uh, get into this with, starting with uh, Li Hon Lam, who's the Emeritus Professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong's Department of Philosophy. Philosophy. Good morning, uh, Professor. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're also joined by Stephanie Law, who is an executive committee member uh, of the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong. Good morning, Stephanie Law. Good morning. Morning. Hey, so uh, this is this is very serious stuff here. Uh, Hong Kong is looking at amending the the laws. Stephanie Law, I want to start with you. Um, you know, talk about the Elderly Services Association of Hong Kong. Are we? You're, you're speaking to a lot of the elderly in Hong Kong who may be facing this situation. Um, right now, are there wishes being thwarted on a regular basis? Are people saying enough and the doctors are saying, oh, no, not enough? Uh, so uh, we are often asked uh, about, you know, the, the options uh, of, you know, dying in place because, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, we have entered into a super aging society. Unlike before, uh, a lot of our elders are, you know, um, in, in the in the uh, like a, a more position to uh, be uh, informed of what their options are. And uh, I would like to stress that, like, from a care home perspective, we do welcome the proposed amendment uh, to give legal status to them on advanced directives, uh, because it's very clear that this medical statement, it's only, you know, for those who are mental, uh, mentally competent person who is uh, 18 or above, and also who are terminally ill and who's that is imminent. Uh, so there are specific, you know, uh, uh, conditions that these people uh, are already in. So when we talk about, you know, end of life uh, options uh, in Hong Kong, we think that a good death uh, is a common wish for elders and their families, and that would include treating the patients as an individual and respecting them on their personal choice of uh, both care and place, which are very essential uh, in measuring the quality of death as well as quality of life. Yeah. What, one little wrinkle that I, I thought I heard you as you kind of rattled that off. Did you say only for people over the age of 80? 18. Oh, 18. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, make, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Okay, that does make a big difference. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, uh, why is this change coming now? Have we had a change in perception about the value of autonomy? 
Um, so in the past, uh, we always have uh, different options. But uh, for care homes in Hong Kong, if we are not uh, uh, home with a nursing home uh, license, uh, most of us can only send uh, those who are terminally ill or if they have, you know, uh, different uh, vital signs, uh, you know, alarm to us, we just have to send them to the hospital, to the AED. And mm -hmm. this is quite stressful. Um, but that's the only option. But with now with, the, with this uh, amendment, uh, we can, you know, have doctors come in 14 days, uh, you know, before uh, the case who's uh, terminally ill, of course, we have to have palliative care support uh, also from the uh, hospital authority. They have outreach teams so that we know uh, the disease trajectory, like um, the, the patients are actually, you know, uh, not performing well so that we can let them stay at home. But now that the support, uh, it's still not uh, widely uh, uh, opens to all the homes. Uh, I think uh, this amendment will help us to, you know, get there progressively. And um, I do think uh, home uh, care homes in Hong Kong, uh, we are serving around uh, 70,000, uh, you know, uh, elders at the moment. So we also need to holistically uh, think about, you know, uh, covering the community uh, because uh, there are uh, 300,000, you know, singleton elders in a community and 1 million people who are aging in place. So this is not only, you know, uh, a, a, an issue for the care home, but also for the wider community. Um, and we understand that care homes have its limitations, but there are already some pilot programs that are helping homes to provide end-of-life care and palliative care. Right. So, so what actual impact will it have on um, elderly um, care homes? I mean, will there? Do you, do you expect there to be a higher demand for for places at care homes? Uh, yes, for, uh, definitely, uh, because a lot of the care homes are uh, planning or they are getting ready uh, to face this, um, uh, you know, uh, the upcoming uh, uh, demand, the high demand, because right now a lot of, you know, hospice care and palliative care uh, are, are in high demand, but there are not enough uh, places uh, for, for people to treat them. So care home has become uh, another option uh, people would look for. Uh, for myself, for my own home, actually, uh, in the past, even if our um, facilities are not uh, prepared for, you know, uh, palliative care, or we have to send them out at a very uh, imminent uh, uh, situation, I still receive a lot of uh, cases who are in their end-of-life care, um, you know, status. So I think um, this is already happening in the community. But we just need, you know, more uh, support uh, on the legal side uh, to let us, uh, you know, uh, have the um, support to die in place. And also uh, more resources from the government on outreach team on uh, medical support on palliative care and end-of-life care. I think this is very critical. Yeah. Uh, Leon Lam, you know, I brought, I raised the issue of agency. And are we, are we changing the way that we think about how much agency patients have oh. over their own their own control, because I know in the past, uh, you know, it hasn't been the patient who has always been making the principal decisions about their care. The doctor has been making it. Extended mm -hmm. family members have been making it, sometimes even without the patient's knowledge. Uh, are, 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 we, are we as a society thinking about how we, are we changing how we think about who gets to decide about the life or the, the life and death of an individual? Well, uh, thank you. Um, yeah, actually, there. That might be um, the case because, in so far as uh, it, it used to be, and it still is to some extent, that is the family members who would uh, try to persuade the the doctor to do this or to do that, or or not to do this or to do that. 
uh, and the doctors or the hospital might fear the possibility of being sued. Mm-hmm. I mean, should they? Right, I mean, because at the end of the day, it's the family members who who will be there, right? And and so that's one thing. And another thing is uh, there has been advancement in the West uh, about uh, about ethics of uh, events directives. So we are actually playing a catch-up game. I mean, uh, I'm sure this idea of events directives has been uh, around in the West for 15, 20 years, and so on. So we are we are late to catch to to, to catch up, as it were. So uh, one one more point I want to make uh, about the part of agency, and that is, um, in a in a American case, uh, legal case. Uh, so there was this view that uh, people do have rights, and we do not lose the right even if we become incompetent. So we just have to have someone else to carry out our rights, I mean, to, to execute our rights. Mm. So this idea of the advanced directive is to have someone else, maybe a proxy, maybe a doctor, maybe someone we can trust uh, to carry out our, our, our will, our rights. Even though we become uh, in, incompetent, right? But I mean, I mean, the issue in Hong Kong is that uh, you know that right has not been firmly established here. People signed up to be organ donors, they die, and the family steps in and says, "No, you are not giving away their organs; they will be buried whole." Uh, dead people don't sue, so doctors have gone with the people who aren't dead, right? And right. somebody who's in a coma, the family comes in and says, "I know you have an advanced directive; you are not going to follow that. You're going to do what we want." Is there is there a sense in Hong Kong that perhaps well, have, have people figured that out that their wishes will not be respected? So we there's a movement to strengthen the law. Actually, uh, currently, events directives have no legal status. Yeah. So as far as I believe, um, the current uh, amendment in legislation uh, or the, the amendment in law is going to give effect, give legal effect. To advance directive, if they are properly signed, executed, and so on, mm. so that 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 would be a game changer, as it were. Right, and uh, do uh, do you think that's a step forward for individ- okay. individual rights and agency, or does it not matter? Do dead people not okay. have rights and agency? Good, good. Thank you. Um, your your so, philosophy, guys. So I figured. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess I want to say three things. First of all, I think in general, I think this should be done. I mean, in, in general. This is a good thing. It's step forward, but uh, I want to um, to raise two caveats to this. First of all, if someone has made uh, uh, made events directives a long time ago, say twenty, thirty years ago, uh, and maybe in the meantime he has even forgotten about it, then what do we do? I mean, do we need to remind them, or you know what I mean? Uh, because People to to make certain to to make you know if people could make a events directive when they're in their twenties, but by the time when they're eighty or ninety, you know, they're forgotten. Sure. So, so so that's the first thing. The second thing is more dramatic and more, if you will, philosophical, and that is in some cases, uh, and these are real cases. Um, where, especially where someone has undergone dementia or Alzheimer's disease, uh, 
he or she has totally forgotten who his or her children are, and has even forgotten that they used to be um, a member of the Jehovah's Witness, for example. Um, so what do we do? I mean, and, and certainly he or she has forgotten about the fact that he has made these event directives. Sure. So do we still, I mean, but this case is slightly different from this early case, because this, uh, as, as a philosopher, as a biophysicist, I say, this person is no longer the same person as the, the early one. There has been a personality change or change in personal identity. Do we still use what someone has done uh, or what his earlier self has done to bind his later self? So this is a very philosophical and very interesting uh, issue, uh, especially involving cases of Alzheimer's disease, uh, advanced Alzheimer's disease. Okay, right. yeah, and you have a third point. Oh, uh, well, I mean, uh, well, actually, uh, my, my first point is uh, I'm in general support of this. The second point okay. is what if people in general uh, have made this event directive uh, a long time ago? The first mm. point is this point about uh, um, Alzheimer's disease. Right. So, but I, I do have uh, another point, maybe I bring it out. Uh, later. You got to keep some of your powder dry for the second half of the conversation. <laughs> I always advise that on radio. So, I mean, okay. I mean, what, one of those issues that you raise, uh, the idea that maybe somebody have written up an advanced directive a long, long time ago. I'm a big mm -hmm. fan of uh, what we call sunset clauses, uh, mm -hmm. whereby you say something and you say this, if this advanced directive is good for five years, maybe 10 years, and then you have to renew it. Right, just to make sure that it's current. I mean, that's maybe an easy fix, Stephanie Law. Do do you get into situations where you have people in an elderly home and a family member pops up with a, an advanced directive that has got some, you know, a very old date on it, and as we've heard, not legally binding at this point. But I mean, do you see those situations mm -hmm. arise where somebody says, "Remember this advanced directive," and you know, it's clearly from so, a long um, time ago. In care home setting, we always say that it is a you know progressive and. Um, uh, it's a it's a ongoing process. Um, we always talk about you know advanced care planning as well uh, for those who are uh, MIP um, or uh, with Alzheimer or dementia. Uh, meaning advanced care planning it en enables individuals to define goals and preferences for future medical treatment and care. And this is just a little bit different from advanced directive, uh, but it is uh, you know always good to know um, in advance what they think about you know their care planning in the future. And what I understand from this amendment is that uh, the, uh, the, the, the notion of it is to carefully consider uh, a, uh, advanced directive, meaning they know what their uh, you know, options are. Uh, they are carefully uh, you know, uh, brief. And uh, of course, in the future, it's easy to, to drop it as well. If uh, you know, they can just say a word, uh, it, it, it could be verbally, it could be written. Um, if they want to drop out you know, the, the uh, uh, AD anytime, uh, that is possible as well. So I think um, the law can protect us from uh, uh, this uh, kind of um, uh, what if uh, we set up an AD that is very early um, and later on we change our mind. I think uh, it's a, uh, you know, uh, amendable uh, option. Yeah. Okay. And right now, Miss um, Law, I mean, when uh, mm -hmm. new elderly residents move into your care homes, do you do you advise them to um, have their own advanced directive when they, you know, when they uh, mm -hmm. uh, go go to your elderly homes? 
So um, each care home has a different uh, pace, or I would say readiness, uh, you know, to promote or to talk about AD. Um, for myself, um, you know, I think it's it's the earlier uh, that we bring it up, it's the easier to talk about it. Uh, of course, about you know their uh, preference on end of life, and, all, and also about you know how our facility can accommodate or cannot accommodate some uh, different kind of uh, situations. Uh, so, um, and and then and as we you know ask uh, the the families and uh, and the elders, uh, actually in in the study that showed. Uh, almost, you know, 30% of the elders, they are, uh, you know, uh, they prefer to, to die in place if there has, there has been an option. So I think, uh, it is important for, uh, different, you know, care homes or institutions to, uh, you know, uh, remind them about, uh, this, uh, events directive. And some of the, you know, elders, uh, recently uh, who, you know, uh, you know, got, uh, admitted to the care homes, a lot of them these days are very aware of this and, they have already signed advanced directives in the HA, in the hospital authority. So when they come in, we are very clear. We know their preferences so that we can execute their uh, wish, you know, upon, you know, uh, if, if something happens. I think this is also a, uh, a good practice uh, for the uh, industry, you know, to follow as well. I'm guessing some people show up at an old folks home after they've already had a major health scare. They've gone to the hospital mm -hmm. authority. They've had to sort out advanced directives. But for other people that haven't had that, uh, do I mean, do you require advanced directives or do you not want to do that? Because, you know, you know how people are in Hong Kong. They're like, oh, if I write a will, I'm going to die. Mm -hmm. They think, you know, are they thinking, oh, if I write an advanced directive, I'm going to die. So I don't want to talk yeah. about it. And they come to the old folk. You guys so, are like, you really should yeah. do it. Because, I mean, otherwise that exposes you to a lot of legal jeopardy. Um, actually, right now, there are a lot of early on, you know, uh, education about uh, life and death and end of life at care homes. So a lot of, you know, talks and, you know, early uh, discussions going on, which are uh, informal. It's just, uh, you know, knowing about, you know, their preferences and do they know about their options. I think this is uh, more important uh, for them to enter into a care home because essentially uh, care homes in Hong Kong are a long-term care facility and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, elders entering into care home, it's the last place uh, they will, you know, stay. So mm. uh, we are an end-of-life, you, know, uh, you know, care facility, uh, essentially, but it's just that, you know, there are still a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that we, we need to prepare ourselves if we uh, take in, you know, end-of-life cases, uh, if we are able to, you know, provide end-of-care uh, rooms, uh, facilities, and uh, support, you know, from uh, outreach, uh, you know, care teams from uh, the hospital authority and also from the government, um, that would really help. Yeah. Yep. And I would like to, you know, add that um, actually in Hong Kong, there are already over 50 uh, care homes who are joining the Jockey Club uh, End of Life Community Care Project for care homes. So this is essentially the pilot program um, that is uh, uh, you know, the ELL uh, care capabilities are very structured, so they would send, you know, medical uh, team support for palliative care into care homes. So these homes are able to let their elders die at the home. So pilot schemes are happening. So mm. I think this is something uh, worth a note of. Yeah. Maybe send us a link to that program and we can put it on our Facebook page. Um, Lee Hon Lam, you know, I, I, brought yeah. up this, I brought up this issue of the reluctance of people to create directives because they you know, think it'll 
lead to their mm-hmm. lead to their immediate uh, their immediate death. Right. I mean, are, are attitudes changing on that now? I mean, it, it is kind of a, a a peculiar form of Hong Kong entertainment where we watch you know billionaires pass away and their families fight mm-hmm. over the the proceeds for years because they didn't write because they, they would not write a will even though it was right. clearly needed. Are, are attitudes changing towards that? Are people becoming more mm-hmm. open to wills and advanced directives and things like that? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, people are more open to to that. Uh, however, uh, I don't think the government. Uh, should uh, force people to make advanced directives. Nor I, do I believe that uh, the government will do that. So I think, uh, you know, it's just, uh, I think the right thing to do is to educate people that there's such a thing as advanced directives, but not to push people into making them. I mean, what I'm saying is our, our attitudes changing on that front. I mean, if you're dealing yeah. with 80, 80 to 90 year old uh, relatives, you know, you might struggle to get yeah. them to write a will or do an advanced directive. But I mean, if you've got people in their 50s and 60s, are they like, yeah, right. no, I get it. Is, is it changing? Uh, well, I, I guess that's a sociological question. Uh, I believe uh, people are changing a little bit, but not profoundly so. Mm. Uh, I don't think, uh, you know, it hasn't been a big step forward. In, in that, uh, you know, right. uh, but, I, 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 but I cannot, you know, give any, uh, I'm not an expert on this sociological thinking of Hong, Hong Kong people. Uh, sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Is, is there a difference between people that are dying because they have some kind of a, a medical related illness that doesn't affect mm-hmm. their thinking versus people that say are suffering from dementia? Is there, is there a different moral responsibility sure. in terms of oh, how we sure. treat these people? I mean, if people, if people are dying, uh, they don't, yeah, but they're competent. They don't need advanced directives. Mm. They can simply refuse treatment or withdraw uh, life-saving instruments from themselves. Or they can even say, oh, don't feed me. I don't want to eat. I don't want to drink. Right. But for someone who has a, who, who's, who's incompetent, uh, he or she would have to rely on other people to carry these wishes out. Um, and also one thing to, that I want to make uh, that uh, I, I should make, um, and that is um, the point about, you know, the changing of the cells, right? I mean, it was my early self who, who made this event directive. And then 50 years later, uh, having become, you know, having lost most of my memory and so on, um, not only do I not know that I made such an event directive, I become a different person. Mm. I have so little mind so to speak, yeah. to be able to, to, to think. So in that case, it raises an issue, especially if uh, the carers or the hospital believe that it is in, in the interest of this, this person to go on living. Then there's a clash between the early self and the later self. Yeah. Not only because there's been a change of personal identity, as some people alleged, but there's also a... You know, it's also in the interest of these people, this person to go on living. Yeah. Now, I understand the current law may focus primarily on uh, resuscitation or CPR, but uh, in broader context, it may also have to do with uh, uh, feeding or non-feeding and non-drinking and so on. Mm-hmm. And if I may, I'd like to make a further point, and that is about uh, the point about uh, to, to look at this in a broader context. Uh, as I said, I believe the um, event directive is, is a step, is a step forward, but a small step forward, I would say. And, and, and that's because, uh, you know, this event directive has to do with 
what is sometimes called passive euthanasia, uh, mm. non-saving, non-treatment, and so on. But that's a, a larger issue in Hong Kong and the rest of the world, and that's called active euthanasia, or um, something that's slightly better, uh, more, slightly more moderate, and that is uh, physician assisted suicide. So well, those are the thing that is another really, huge issue. Yeah, that's another huge issue. But yeah. I, but, but we should keep that in mind that because the because of uh, medical scientists' resistance to assisted suicide, uh, let's not think that this is something mm-hmm. uh, that can replace can replace this, yeah. About, yeah. about assisted suicide or active euthanasia. That's a very good point. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Lee Han Lam, Emeritus Professor. We're going to take that that thought into the second half of the show where we're going to have the lawyers and the doctors on to discuss this issue. Uh, this has been Lee Han Lam, who's the Emeritus Professor at Chinese University of Hong Kong at the Department of Philosophy. Thank you so much, Professor Lam. And also Stephanie Law, an Executive Committee member with the Elderly Services Association in Hong Kong, joining us. We will be back more on this uh, topic. Uh, for now, I'll give you a quick hit on the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers today. Max temperature about 26 degrees. Uh, showers and thunderstorms over the weekend is not going to be looking good, but that's the way it's going to go. Right now, it's 25 degrees Celsius and 78%. And now the news with Andrew Shirovsky. A University of Hong Kong study of young people has found close to 20% of respondents had th- suicidal thoughts in the past year, and 16% likely had psychological problems. A team from the University of Hong Kong interviewed more than 3,300 people. It found that three-quarters of those with a diagnosable mental disorder had not sought help. The tech billionaire Elon Musk has tweeted that he has found a new chief executive for Twitter. And he'll be handing over in about six weeks. Mr. Musk did not say who his replacement would be, only that she is a woman. And Ukraine has welcomed the announcement from Britain that it's providing Kyiv with cruise missiles, enabling it to hit Russian targets further into occupied Ukrainian territory. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. Rivers help carry rainwater away. They bring in vitality to communities. They're inhabited by many different species. While we should admire our rivers, we should also stay alert to changes in the weather. During bad weather, a rainstorm could cause a flash flood, and we should stay away from watercourses. Enjoy river scenery. Beware of flash floods. No matter how cool you are, No matter how popular the photos you shared on social media, once you take drugs, they will damage your physical and mental health or even ruin your life. Call 1-866-186 or send a message via WhatsApp or WeChat to 9816186 to speak with us. We are here to help. Let's stand firm. Knock drugs out. And we're back on Backchat. Uh, Andrew Work, that's me, and Dennis Wong with her lovely dulcet tones uh, doing the show with us today. Here we go. Um, we have a we have an email uh, that's come in from Mike. Mike has adopted the very Trumpian uh, practice of, of pre-trolling the media by saying, you won't talk about this. This is never discussed in the media. But of course it is. And you'll see what I mean when I read out his email. Here is a more important aspect you won't discuss, but we will. 
Uh, terminal palliative care, in which the patient controls their own pain medicine. One example would be a morphine pump. Patients in pain seem to live longer. Those out of pain let go more peacefully. And uh, our guest touched on that just before we broke for the news. But we got new guests lined up, and maybe we'll get into that topic uh, as well and prove Mike wrong. Uh, we have on the show joining us now Daisy Chung, the Assistant Professor of Law and Deputy Director and Research Fellow at the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning, Daisy. Good morning. Hi, thank you for having me. No, thanks for coming on the show. We also welcome David Lamb, a lawmaker for the Functional Constituency of Medicine and Health Services. He is also a specialist in general surgery, so a real doctor. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Lamb. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about uh, this this issue of uh, people's re- wishes being respected in terms of advanced directives and their right to refuse treatment. But we're talking about this because there is a law coming to LegCo. David Lamb, you are a legislator. Presumably you're going to be involved in the debate today, uh, mm-hmm. a vote today. Can you tell us what is the status of this law? Well, this today is really a discussion about a proposal uh, we have not yet seen the bill so far, uh, but actually doctors, especially in a public hospital, has been practicing advanced medical directive under the framework of common law for quite some time. And it is generally quite accepted by the patients and the families. So we're just codifying the law so, so as to make it clearer uh, to everyone. Okay, and and so so you're saying we haven't actually seen a law yet. Who's going to write this law? Are the government bureaucrats going to write this law, or are legislators going to be writing this? The law will be proposed by the government, and then the legislative council will vet the law uh, line by line, section by section, and then before that, we will discuss the overall plan and also the framework, that, and that is what is to be done today. Right. And according to uh, the LegCo paper, I mean, uh, the proposed law amendment uh, would protect, uh, would better uh, protect health care professionals from lawsuits in the future. I mean, what is the situation now, Dr. Lam? I mean, do, oh, do... I, I don't think there is a lot of lawsuits regarding uh, doctors and, and other medical uh, professionals at the moment. But the uh, worry is really more on the paramedics who see the patients on an emergency basis, such as um, the ambulance crew. There would be very little time to go on to go to check if the patient has uh, advanced medical directive before. So uh, it is really a decision of that particular moment. And if uh, the patients or the relatives, mostly the relatives, tell the emergency medical crew that that this patient has uh, sort of a med- med- advanced medical directive. At the moment, um, I think the paramedics are obliged not to follow that directive, but to provide um, emergency resuscitative service to the patient. Oh, that is the law currently. Right. currently. I, I was mm. uh, having a quick look at the LegCo paper, and then they did mention a possibility of having a digital version of an advanced medical oh, directive. Yeah. What's your, your view on that? Would, would that help? Yes, certainly. Now, imagine someone uh, who decided to make his own advanced medical director when he was still mentally sound. And maybe weeks down the road, he become fully, totally unconscious, and then something happened. And there arises the question whether certain medical treatment should be given to him. Now, that is a stage where the person is totally unconscious, and where do you get that advanced medical directive? Yeah, where are you going to get but, it from? Yeah. Where do you get it from? Of course, um, he would probably 
has told the doctors that we, well, I mean, if uh, he is a long-term patient of that particular doctor, then of course the doctor would know, or that he can tell the relatives. But then, what about those who has not told the relative or the relative who knew about it wasn't there, and somehow the doctor heard that this patient might have an AMD? Then that would be a difficult situation. If that is incorporated in a system like the EHRSS or the eHealth system, then it will be available to the doctor at that needed moment. But of course, uh, there's also a downside to it. At the current moment, if the patient wishes to delete or withdraw his advanced medical directive, all he has to do is just tear it up, right? Right. But then, if it is inside the eHealth system, you can't tear it. You need to do something. Uh, proactively to remove it or to delete it and it is quite uh, controversial if someone who is of a relatively advanced age or in a not too good health condition knows how to handle those digital gadgets so that's the downside of it yeah, I mean, time, I believe. how yeah, would people even know like, like I'm trying to imagine this and like I remember in the old <laughs> days people used to wear medical bracelets to indicate that they had a condition you, I don't know I don't know if they had this in Hong Kong but in Canada you'd know somebody I think it was like diabetes or something and they would have yeah. a bracelet and I mean would it like a paramedic shows up somebody's wearing a bracelet you know they check they're like oh by the way what's your mobile number I need to check your advanced directives uh -huh. I mean and then, and then they got to get an SMS and it's like would you like to confirm it meanwhile they're dying in the ambulance I mean this all seems complicated Daisy Chung uh, yeah. I mean this this seems like it's got a lot of legal complications especially yeah, in an yeah. emergency situation how right. how do we deal with this yeah sorry I was just gonna jump in um, as far as I know with the uh, complications with the fire services ordinance which is the ordinance that uh, requires the paramedics to um, sort of give uh, life-saving um, treatment immediately. The uh, proposal will, um, will is along the lines of, because for them it's really hard to, for, for paramedics uh, to be clear, it's hard for them to read, because sometimes advanced directives can end up being very lengthy, so they can cover a lot of different situations. They cover, you know, uh, what happens in a certain situation A, for a certain situation B. So for paramedics, they want something that they can work with. They can just look at one page and they can be immediately like, okay, well, I don't need to, you know, uh, resuscitate or I do need to resuscitate. They don't want to make these really difficult uh, judgments. Like, is this person in a terminal, terminal ill state or is this person, you know, in a certain clinical state? So essentially, um, um, for, for them, what would work is a DNA CPR code. Uh, do not resuscitate. And, and, and there's a lot of complications there, which I, I won't go to in, uh, at the moment. But currently, I understand that the proposal is to have original ADs only uh, be allowed because of the problem that um, I think David just mentioned about the uh, difficulty to remove or to revoke an AD once it's in the EHRSS. But this has also been um, subject to some controversy. Uh, there was a study that was a very large-scale uh, large study that was conducted by the um, uh, NGO, the newly established NGO, uh, MIP CRC Care Resources Connect, and they did a really large-scale interview, which suggested that you know the society, or, or uh, you know, the, the, their sample population was uh, really keen to have a central depository, uh, which is different from the EHRSS and is accessible by the community, so they can upload, download, etc. Um, and there's been some debate about whether Hong Kong is ready for this technology, and the the um, the, the people at this you know the, this discussion of this um, this survey felt that you know they were ready actually in terms of tech and in terms of you know it, with the um, leave home safe for example a lot of 
elderly people you know, were able to figure out technology in a way that we hadn't expected. And so uh, I think a lot of people do feel that uh, society is ready and, and is mature for this kind of central depository, which would make things a lot easier than expecting people to carry, you know, 30 or 40 page AD documents with them. And sorry, just to go back to your medical bracelet, that also is a reason why a medical bracelet wouldn't work in such a scenario, because um, there are so many different unpredictable scenarios that could happen at the end of life, such that if you just have the indication, well, I don't want to be saved, well, what about in this scenario? What if we're just going to give you this? You know, what if, like, so, so it's, it's a very complicated situation which couldn't be resolved by something as simple as, you know, a, a card or um, a medical bracelet, basically. Yeah, I mean, and we're, I guess we're dealing with a motivation issue here as well. You said, you know, Hong Kong's elderly people got motivated. You know, they, they managed to figure out leave them safe app. Sure, when we told them they couldn't go to Yumta. Yeah. But, you know, when it was, you know, but when it's like preparing for their end of life, uh, they're not usually yeah. that interested mm-hmm. in, in dealing with this, as we, we talked about in the first part of the show. That's um, true. Yeah. So, so Dave. Oh, sorry, if I could just, yeah. um, just jump in with one, one thing I heard at the beginning of the show, which I wanted to very quickly address, was about the idea of sunset causes, which you mentioned. I don't yes, know. I'm um, a big yeah, fan. So, um, yeah, so the idea, I think this is interesting. So we did uh, a cross-comparative uh, study with uh, 16, well, 15 other jurisdictions on uh, advanced directives. And uh, Israel is an example of a jurisdiction where the AD only lasts for five years. So if you wanted your AD to last longer, you would need to renew it. But the problem with this is, you know, um, if you lose capacity before you are able to renew, then you are not able to make an AD. So this is a problem for people who, you know, aren't really as on top of things. They don't realize they need to renew every five years. Mm. And if they lose capacity in the meantime, then they lose the right to have that done. So so that is a, a, a con to the idea of the sunset clause, although obviously a pro to the situation you guys were discussing just now. Yeah. D- David Lamb, how much mm-hmm. how much direction or how much uh, how much input are you getting from other jurisdictions? I mean, have you have you looked at what the uh, I mean, what countries have done this right? Others who haven't done it right have either neglected it or have implemented a law that has not worked out the way people thought it would. I mean, are you are you taking direction from examples around the world? Well, we have to discuss that today. But as you mentioned, there are other jurisdictions who are doing similar things. And I noticed that some jurisdiction set the, the time limit to the validity of the AMD, which I think, well, is hard to implement because as uh, a colleague just said, if you, uh, if someone becoming unconscious before the expiry or after the, near the expiry of the AMD, then he may just forget to unable to renew it and that removes the uh, the right to, of self-determination from that particular person which is not a good thing to do now going back to the issue of the paramedics uh, you mentioned about the bracelet um, maybe it is helpful in the sense that it alerts the paramedic that this person has a uh, advanced medical director and you can actually have a number as you mentioned or a QR code on it where a standard scanner uh, with the paramedics can actually link it up to the actual page of the advanced medical directive. Mm. So that's that is a possibility. We still have to look into it. And then uh, to the paramedics, it is relatively simple. What they are actually looking at is whether to resuscitate or not, but rather, uh, yeah, ex- uh, rather than the more complicated issues of whether one gives a Foley's capital or intravenous fluid or sort of medication or not so mm. what they have to decide is whether to resuscitate or not so that is another part of the proposal which is a standardized um, page of dna cpr mm. and if that is available at the time the paramedics arrive at the patient's home or wherever he is then they can decide whether to resuscitate or not to resuscitate 
Is it, um, is, as for the more detailed mm. uh, instruction on the AMD, that is usually up to the medical doctors or, or, the, or the nurses to handle. Is it, is it possible to have a two-level AMD, one for emergency situations and one for non-emergency situations? Because, I mean, you know, as, as you know, you've both pointed out, it's not reasonable for a paramedic to be able to, you know, wade through 30 pages of different scenarios. You know, maybe, maybe there's an emergency version that is like resuscitate, don't resuscitate, and let's say, hey, patient, you know, come on. The paramedics got to well, deal with you. You, you can't you have, have it. You can't have, you know, 50 different yeah. options. You know, it's not reasonable. Well, then you face the difficulty of defining what is emergency and what is not emergency. So the easier way out is to have a DNA CPR, that is, do not attempt resux- uh, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, mm-hmm. which is a very straightforward instruction. Um, if you consider that to be the only emergency situation whereby the paramedics have to decide immediately whether to provide CPR or not. Uh, and in the proposal, that is a separate form. Um, but then the AMD uh, can be, well, more complicated, inclusive of more conditions um, and also more forms of treatment. And that would be usually left to the doctors and the nurses to handle when the patient arrives in the medical facility. Hmm. Right. And, and Dr. Lam, I mean, I, I know you'll be uh, discussing this uh, further with your colleagues uh, later on this morning. Um, ha- have you been speaking to them about this? I mean, what, what do you think will be the main uh, talking point? I mean, what, what are their, some of their concerns? I think the, uh, whether to digitalize it is certainly one concern. Another is, um, now, when I get an advanced medical directive from my patient, then a prerequisite is that he or she is mentally sound. All right. Now, uh, it is possible, although I, I don't think it's, it's really very common, that someone comes out later on and challenges that. How did you know, doctor, he was mentally sound? Mm-hmm. Did you use any instrument uh, to assess whether he was mentally sound? Now, that complicates issues. Because the doctor who takes care of the patient may be an oncologist, maybe a surgeon, uh, but rarely or seldom a psychiatrist. And it is only the psychiatrist or the clinical psychologist who knows most of those uh, instruments for assessing uh, mental validity. But then it is also our usual practice to obtain informed consent from patients for surgery. And we generally will not uh, use a very complicated tool to assess whether the patient is mentally sound. Now, if this becomes a law and it requires the doctor to... Um, ensure that the patient was mentally sound, then that adds sorts of an impediment to how this can be carried out, actually. So this is also something I am a little bit concerned about. Hmm. And is there is there a question about the undue influence of pain? Should we be letting people administer their own pain medicine? And then the, does that influence their... Like oh, pain you, medicine, yes, you, you always can. Uh, we now actually encourage patients to use their own decision, their own judgment to administer their own uh, painkillers, including uh, sometimes morphine, and whether that affects the the uh, mentality is yeah. another issue. Now, but the well, that, that's the question I wanted to ask: is if if somebody's like you know dosing themselves with morphine, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, is is their competence then questioned? Yeah, but okay. that, that's just what the doctor has to decide, and you cannot go onto the uh, real difficult psychological assessment tools. Because very likely one of those requirements with those tools will be he's not under the influence of medicine. And when these patients are almost always under the influence of some sort of medicine because Mm -hmm. of their illness, then they are something you have to do away with and be very practical. Hmm. Unless you say that anyone who is under uh, 
the Jew in, uh, un, under influence of medicine has lost his right of self-determination, which I don't think so. Right, right. Oh, man, so someone who is kicking yeah. morphine, uh, mm -hmm. who has severe pain, I still think he should be, he still ha should have the right of self-determination. And a doctor's role is to discuss with him, make sure he understands for, to the fullest extent possible and make an informed decision for himself. Mm -hmm. And rather to take away his right of self-determination because he is under sort of influence and he was not 100% mentally sound. Mm -hmm. I think those arguments uh, are something we have to handle maybe today or maybe in a later stage. Sure. One of the most important reasons that we articulate human rights is with the intention of alleviating pain. And it seems a little ironic Sorry. that under, under, under the, the actually trying to relieve pain or taking actions that relieve pain, we could take away uh, a person's fundamental right of agency. Weighty issues on Backchat today. Uh, I think we could probably carry on another couple of hours with our guest right now, Daisy Chung, Assistant Professor of Law and Deputy Director of Research Fellow at the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong, and David Lam, Lawmaker, Functional Constituency Medical and Health Services, uh, and a Doctor in Specialist in General Surgery. Uh, could talk for hours on this. Really great guest, Janice. I'm glad we had them on today. Maybe we'll have to do it again as this issue develops. Uh, we are in a couple of seconds going to be talking about the national games in Hong Kong. But first, a little something about our THK. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Happy anniversary, RTHK. 95 years. Congratulations. Wish you all the best. I'm Tim from Dear Jane. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, we're back on Backchat. Um, <laughs> Mike is getting his digs in. He didn't like my uh, comparing his intro to his comments as Trumpian. And I'll, I'll give you his newest uh, missive we've gotten. He says, why the comments whenever I enter your program? It was Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. You can't handle the truth. You won't discuss this. I was right. You read my note, but you didn't discuss it. Now, that was Trumpian, says Mike. Uh, we tried to get to it at the end. It wasn't exactly on top, but we did get to it at the end, Mike, probably right as you were hitting the send button on that email. Um, Carrying on, we are talking about the National Games coming to Hong Kong. Uh, joining us on the show now, we welcome Patrick Lau, Professor, Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at Hong Kong Baptist University, right down the road from uh, Broadcast House. Uh, Professor Lau, welcome to the show. Yeah, good morning. Morning. Yeah. So what's the deal? The National Games are coming. First of all, I'm not so familiar with the National Games. How often do they happen and how do they usually determine where they happen? Well, this is the central government country, RC. Uh, after they um, start in the 1950s, uh, basically their rule and function is trying to, on one hand, to develop the elite power in the international sport platform. And on the other hand, they would like to use the military influence of the soldiers' um, strength to promote the um, mass sport culture. These two are the main basic reasons at, at that time. And then later on, after the 1979, the open policy of the PLC gave back to the international stage. Um, the national game is the preparation stage for the Olympic Games, and this is the second time they would like to strengthen their uh, elite performance. After, after the 1990s, um, this function is already uh, fulfilled. So at the moment, the national game is only the demonstration of individual province uh, strength and trying to demonstrate the 
United uh, sense of, of the whole country. So this is the basic history of the Lesson Luke Games of China. Okay, and, and how often do the games happen? Every four years. Every four years. And they're, they're, so are they still connected to qualifying for the Olympics? No. Not anymore. As I mentioned in the second point, they, they would like to screen and nurture the talented uh, young athletes to prepare the winning possibility for the Olympic Games in the past. But this is not the same function anymore. Uh, That's why when we see the Lesson Luke Games, it's always one year after the Olympic Games right now. All right. Uh, Professor Lau, I mean, so far we know uh, Hong Kong will uh, uh, host uh, eight solo and four team events of the National Games. Uh, what events do you think uh, is uh, suitable for Hong Kong to host? I believe what, why the Hong Kong SI and the Hong Kong government, they determined the eight major sport games for the athletes is based on our medal-winning records. For example, the windsurfing, the fencing, and uh, on the other hand, although the uh, team sports like uh, ball games in soccer, we are not very, very well, but this is a very strong soccer culture in Hong Kong. That's why they would like to pick this. So as a whole, they would like to promote the winning performance possibility for that, and at the same time, trying to balance a little bit of the mass sport culture. Mm. And, and for people in terms of how they get to the games and how they represent is it like the uh the ancient greek olympics where you would just show up and compete if you were good you got to compete or do you have to come through a qualifying process through your yes, province your yeah. sar your special zone yeah. you're correct you're very correct which um, one in hong kong in the hong kong sport institute they have the scoring system based on the uh, talented um junior ethics and adult ethics team so um all the the athletes, they are trained in Hong Kong SI and uh, um, um, sanctioned by the uh, Hong Kong Olympic Committee, then, then they can uh, go out and represent Hong Kong to compete. So it's the same system like uh, we participate in the Olympics. Okay, so you have to represent, and, and so I guess you're coming from, a, in China, primarily the provinces, right? Not the autonomous, uh, how about the autonomous regions or special cities like Beijing or... Xiong'an now. Yeah, it, yeah, it applies to all. Yeah, that's okay. mentioned. That's from SAR, yeah. Okay. Right, and uh, we will be uh, um, co-hosting the, ga uh, the games and uh, we'll, be, we'll have some events in Hong Kong. What, what sort of impact uh, do you think it will have? I mean, what, what benefits uh, will, will there be? I mean, will there uh, be an increase in uh, um, sports here? I mean, in the interest of sports? What, what yeah, do you think? very good question. Very good question this month. If you look at this, the schedule, of the uh, Asian Games, which will be held in this September in Hangzhou, China. And this year will be the Paris Olympics. And two years later, the National Games 2005. And we will work with uh, uh, Macau in Guangzhou. Uh, so um, this is extremely good timing for us to promote and further strengthen the sport intellectualization. As you see, last summer, um, we established a new bureau uh, called um, Culture, Sport and Tourism Bureau. And this is exactly the good timing we would like to um, further develop the sport and At the moment, um, about the commercial value of elite sport in Hong Kong is still underdeveloped. We need to adopt the new structure and try to, on one hand, reduce the government burden to, uh, to the green sport. And on the other hand, the commercial value should be maximized. So it's a really good timing for us to consider how to uh, maximize the sport industry. Hmm. And 
So, I mean, in terms of sport industry, that's great. Uh, are we going to find when do we find out what sports are going to be hosted in Hong Kong? So, we're we're co-hosting this with who? With with Macau, Hong Kong, who else? Uh, Guangzhou and Guangzhou. Guangzhou. So it's a three-city yeah. event. So, Zhuhai, yeah. Shenzhen. Sorry, guys, you're out. Exactly. So the uh, Greater Bay Area. So uh, I would say the the strength or, or benefits you are hosting with other cities in China and in Macau, then it will actually uh, broaden our impact in the Greater Bay Area. It's a very good opportunity for us to do it. But at the same time, due to the administration and communication between different cities and regions, that will be a um, significant problem with the communication because different cities, actually, we have different administrative systems. So uh, that is very challenging for the administrators uh, mm-hmm. to start this game. But, so, but th- this is always a pros and cons, though. Right. Okay. Professor Lau, I know you just uh, came back from Guangzhou. Um, how, I mean, in your view, how, how does uh, the, the sports facilities there compare to the ones in Hong Kong? I can say one that's much better than us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the efficiency and uh, they have a very um, top-down system to um, speed up the process and its construction. And, and so uh, regarding the schedule, they can speed up very quick. And on the other hand, the technology and construction has been done very, very well in the past two, two decades. So I would say the, in terms of the hardware, they are very, very uh, well um, constructed and prepared. In terms of the event management, because in the past 10, 20 years, um, including the Olympic Games, during the Olympics, and the local marathon championships in different ball games and swimming, ballast, they're very well trained at the moment. I believe the advancement of the stock professional is really uh, well prepared for the event. We, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, what sports can we expect to see in Hong Kong? Fencing, windsurfing. Yeah, this too will be uh, a greater opportunity to be successful okay. and uh, awarded <clears throat> by the central government. And, and any others? I mean, I, I saw the number eight, like eight potential sports could be could be seen in Hong Kong, or are they still trying to figure out which sports will go where? Yeah, this is not the final call, though, but I believe the central government will try to entertain us because these exports are actually the best one we have at the, for the reading table. All right, but we don't know what they are yet, so I guess we'll have to wait and not find yet. out. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. I just mentioned we need to come amongst and discuss with other two cities. Okay, so it's Hong Kong, Macau, and Guangzhou only, right? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Well, we will look forward to that, and that is happening in 2025. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. This is Patrick Lau. He's a professor at the Department of Sport, Physical Education and Health at Hong Kong Baptist University. He seems close. We should have just had him come up to the studio if he's if he's right down the road. Um, so thank you very much to everybody for joining us today. I'm Andrew Work, and I've been on with Janice Wong today. And I believe usually on Monday we have uh, Jim Gould and Mike Rouse on Back Chat. So be sure to tune in. Oh, I'm on. I'm on Monday. Fantastic. So tune in for Back Chat with me, Andrew Work. And Mike Rouse. Oh, that's going to be a live one. All right, so be ready for it. Back Chat Monday. This has been Janice and Andrew on your Friday. Have a great weekend.